morning. I am Trin. I am the campus pastor here at Lathrop Campus, one of your pastors here. I'm grateful to be here with you this morning. I'm going to be bringing the word today. We're in the story, chapter 17 and 18. Um, so you go ahead and pull out your storybooks. If you don't have one, there's um, some in the, the table in the back. We can certainly help you with that. We want you to have what you need. Um, a couple things I want to let you know about. First of all, I want to thank uh, Pastor Troy is our lead pastor. He's also my daddy. Um, and then uh, Matt and Michael are my uh, brothers-in-law. And they actually took my, my husband, Pastor Brian is not here today. They took him on a belated birthday excursion. They kidnapped him this morning. And so that's where they're at today. And speaking of birthdays, I would be remiss if I didn't make another big giant deal of Anthony's birthday this weekend. Happy. <laughs> He's hiding uh, behind there. Happy birthday, brother. We love you very much. Um, one more thing I want to remind you about, uh, yeah, Ashley mentioned the new year and how many of you are like me and you're like, I'm not even ready for Christmas yet. Um, but, but the new year is fast approaching. And in January every year, we have what's called our state of the church address. Um, so this is our network wide. Um, it also functions as our annual business meeting. And so if you're a member, a voting member of New Life Church, you need to make sure to be there. Um, but anyone is welcome. And, and what we do here is we go over our, our business. Um, we are a, you know, a 501c3, all that. We need to do all of our business. We need to steward um, all the resources that God has given us very well. We also cast vision for the coming year for 2022. Now, if you were at vision night, you might be like, well, I don't need to be there. Here's the deal. We had miracle offering. That's how God set us up to kind of start the vision. We had vision night. That's where God helped us cast the vision. Um, so he had already cast it through Pastor Troy and through the team and through the conversations and prayer that we're having. But that was kind of the like, here's get ready. Here's what's happening. And again, if you weren't there, please come talk to me um, because you don't want to be like on a bus that you don't know where it's going, right? Like, so, um, so you're a part of this. What you know, what you do where you are, how you function is, is important. And then the state of the church address is kind of when we're all like, okay, here we go. It's like the top of the roller coaster. Okay. So we want to make sure that, that we're all there and especially members, please make sure that you're going to be there. It's January 16th at 1130 AM. Some of you are doing the math right now. That's a Sunday morning at 1130 here at this campus. We will have an abbreviated gathering that morning, beginning at 1030, and then we will wrap it up and go straight into our State of the Church address. So again, you'll already be here, um, but just look forward to that on Sunday, January 16th. All right. I want to get into two chapters this morning. How many of you were blessed by Pastor Tasha's word last week? How many of you needed that? How many of you have been whispering to yourself all week, hot dog or weenie, hot dog or weenie, hot dog or weenie? Uh, if you didn't hear it, you need to go back and listen to it. It was, I mean, it challenged me. Um, and so I really appreciate that. Now we're going to kind of segue back into the story. Uh, the story is a 31 chapter book. It's written in novel format, but what it is, is it's the Bible in chronological order. Uh, many of you might not remember, might not realize the Bible is not written in chronological order. Seems like it's kind of like teasing because Genesis is about the beginning and Revelation is about the end, but what's in between there is not necessarily in chronological order. And so sometimes you can be like, King who? And you just kind of like don't have any context for the story. So we together for 31 weeks, and we're right in the middle of it, are um, going through the Bible in chronological order so that when you throw open the cover to say Jeremiah, like we're talking about this week, you have some context for when it was, where it was, what was going on. You have the background of the story. So we're going to dive in this morning, but I'd like to tell you a story. So I mentioned that um, I'm Pastor Troy and Pastor Keeley's daughter. Many of you know that they have four girls. Some of you may not know that we also had three foster brothers when I was a teenager. So there were seven of us in the house at one time. Now I have three. I don't know how my parents did seven. Um, I, I, but, but they did it and God bless them. They did it. And it was a beautiful thing. And so there were nine of us then there's seven and mom and dad and around town, they actually called us the Stein nine, um, which my 16 year old self just loved. So, um, but when I was a teenager, uh, they were, so there, I mean, it was, it's like, I think nine years between I was the oldest and the youngest so that we were all really tight, really close together. And um, one summer uh, looking for stuff for us to do, uh, my parents got us an above ground pool. It was one of those pools that's like a big blue bag basically. And then it has like the 
inflatable ring, you know, so that when you fill it up, the ring floats on top and it's like a bag of water. You just throw your kids in there. Um, but it was going to be big enough for all of us. And we were really, really excited about this. Now, full disclosure, if you were at the Modesto campus last night, you heard dad tell this story and he told it from his perspective. I'm going to tell you the story as reality and then you can just go back and compare and contrast, okay? Because his recollection as I was listening to it, I was like, okay, that's a lot of you. But when I was a teenager, I do recall that you just had like this workforce that you would just sick on any given thing, okay? So, so he, what he remembers is he went out, he bought up the pool, he set it up, and he filled it. And that's not what happened. I'm just telling you, as, as the Lord is my witness, that is not what happened. One morning, he gets up. He goes, okay, guys, we got to set up the pool. And we were like, well, Merry Christmas. Thanks, Dad. We'll set up the pool. And he's, so he's like, okay, get ready. We're going to fill up the pool. We're going to go swimming. So we all go get our swimsuits on, get our little floaties. We get some sun lotion on. You know, we're ready to go. And then he takes us out to this patio we had on our back backyard, this, this like, you know, concrete. And he says, okay, okay, we're going to inflate it, first of all. Now, again, he glossed over this. I don't recall any kind of, of electric pump being offered to anyone. It was like, I think we have like a bike pump in the back, kids, go get it. And so, of course, us girls were like, well, go boys get you know and so that so we're standing i just want you to imagine four like middle school to teenagers in their swimsuits standing around this ring while one of us goes <laughs> it's a big pool this was an eighteen thousand gallon pool so it's a good size so finally the ring is inflated on top of this blue bag and dad's like now we have to fill it we have what most homes in america have one garden hose so he takes it like it's this big thing and he turns on the hose and sets it in the middle of the blue bag and we're all just standing there like, I mean, this is going to be fun. So, so we had church that night um, and, and uh, so he goes, okay, well, we'll swim when we get home, <laughs> go change for church. So we go take off our very dry bathing suits and wipe off all the sunscreen and get ready for church. And we go to church that night and he says, we'll do an evening swim when we get back and we just leave it filling with the garden hose, you know? So we, we load into the Yukon, all nine of us, we go to church. Uh, at this time, we lived in the high desert, okay? So we lived at a very dry place, and we're coming home, and we're at, at Walmart on Main Street, a mile away from our home. Mom, you remember this? And there's no rain, not a cloud in the sky, and there's water gushing down the like gutters on Main Street, a mile away from our home, and we're all like, that's really weird. Now, you know where this is going. We get there and the pool filled and then toppled and it washed out the alley behind our house and it was flowing a mile in either direction down Main Street from 18,000 gallons of water. So dad's like, kids? And we're like, are we gonna throw away the pool? And he's like, we're trying again. So apparently, it, and you know this, if you know anything about homes, we didn't know this, the patio had like a two inch grade on it so that if water fell, like if rain fell, it would flow away from the house. So obviously, we did the exact same thing again. Put the hose in, fill her up, and then dad's like watching out the window to see how it's going, and then I hear him go, boys! And they all, <laughs> this is great, you ready for this? They all go running out there because he had seen that now it was full and it was starting to tip again, and he tries to have, now my brothers are not, um, bodybuilders, okay? They were like, and they were little, they hadn't like, you know, they weren't men yet, so they, he's like, hold it up! And my tiny little brothers are like, and he's like, hold it up! And we're all like laughing because you have to laugh at this and, until the water finally came over the side and my brothers go body surfing down the alley and we're like, bye! <laughs> Enjoy your swim! It was a disaster. So, <laughs> so um, <laughs> I wish that you could see the face of dad, um, the face of my, we couldn't see their faces. I mean, they were down by Walmart, but um, I wish you could see our faces at that time. But my dad kind of standing back there in this giant like lake in our backyard going, what happened? 
So this is an example of the image that the Old Testament uses to help us see what happens when we put our hope in something other than God. It's a feeling that a lot of you probably know. You've probably experienced that same feeling. You, you see the spiritual decline of our country and the water is just emptying out and it doesn't feel like there's anything that you can do. And so you have this like hopeless, panicked feeling. Or you feel this way about your marriage because you were in love and it was going to be happily ever after, but you've patched one hole after another, year after year, and the water level just keeps dropping until there's no hope left. And maybe you feel that way about your kids. Like you love them and you want what's best for them and you're seeing some of the decisions that they're making and the direction that they're starting to go and you're wondering, how did that happen? What happened? Or maybe you feel that way about your finances, like you plan for retirement or you've watched your savings or your investments drain out and you have this hope, hopeless feeling because you put your hope in something and now it's sprung a leak, leak and you're trying to fix it and you're trying to repair it. You're trying to hold up the walls of the pool, but the water just keeps falling out. And this is the message of idolatry in the Old Testament. This is what Jeremiah is going to talk to us about in Jeremiah chapter 2. When we put our hope in something other than God, it eventually springs a leak. And then we panic as we watch our security, all the water pour out. Because these false gods, these idols, they do hold water, but not for very long. Now, before we get there, I want to give you a little catch up, a little context from what we've been talking about for the past several weeks. Remember, there was the nation of Israel, which was God's people. He had established them into the nation of Israel, and now they were split into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom, which was known as Israel, and then the southern kingdom known as Judah. And for 208 years, God warns his people through nine different prophets that judgment is coming if they don't change their ways. Last time we saw that the northern kingdom, Israel, was decimated by the Assyrian army, 185,000 troops. And then God uses that event to warn the southern kingdom to get their act together. They're going to be next. And so the Assyrian army comes to attack the southern kingdom, but they have a righteous king, King Hezekiah. He was a man of prayer and humility and purity. And during his lifetime, God rescues the people from the Assyrians. Okay, so northern kingdom decimated because of their sin. Southern kingdom saved because they, were, they had a pure, righteous leader. But then Hezekiah dies and his son Manasseh takes over and he doesn't follow God. He was so evil that he put the false gods back up again. You read this. Um, if he was so evil that he actually sacrificed his own son to a false God. And God said, enough is enough. And so God allows King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army, who was another world power at the time, to attack Judah in three different sieges. And then in 586 BC, the Babylonians come in and they take Jerusalem, which is the capital city. They destroy the temple, which was the dwelling place of God. And then they take all but a small number of people captive um, and take them back to their homeland. Most are, are, they're either killed or taken as prisoners, and there's just a small remnant left, um, including the prophet Jeremiah, who you read about this week. And his job is to continue to preach God's word to people and call them to repent, but they won't listen. God actually told Jeremiah that. You read that in your book. He, he told him, I need you to preach, but they're not going to accept what you say. And they didn't. They despised him. And Jeremiah is a unique prophet and a beautiful prophet because when he's preaching, he's not yelling at people. He was actually referred to as the weeping prophet because he's in tears. He's begging them. Uh, to repent and to turn back to God. And here's the message that God gives Jeremiah. Now, it's from Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 4 and 11 through 13. It'll be on the screen. But if you're in your book, it's going to be on pages 238 and 239. And this is what it says. Here, this is what Jeremiah is saying. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. 
my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So here's what God does. He encapsulates all their sin, all their rebellion into one category, idolatry. It says, you have forsaken me and you have dug your own cisterns that don't even hold water. He's saying that idolatry is not just a sin, but it is the sin that all sins fall under. I'm going to say that again. Idolatry, worshiping false idols, is not just one of the sins. It is the sin that all of our sins fall under. So it, it could be depending on money or sex or power or success or entertainment or food or substances. But the base foundation of each of these gods is really idolatry. And so Jeremiah uses a metaphor to help the people understand what he's talking about. He calls the false gods cisterns that don't hold water. He says, you're looking to a source other than God to quench the thirst in you. So a well is a source of water that comes up from the ground. When you dig a well, it's a source of water that comes up from the ground. A cistern is a hole dug in the ground to collect water that comes from above. And at that place, at that time, cisterns were very common because it was dry for about half the year. It wouldn't rain, and they didn't just have a tap they could turn on. So water was a very precious commodity. So they would dig these cisterns, these holes in the ground, and then they would plaster the inside of them to make like a giant bowl that would collect all the water. And then they just, whatever water came in there was the water that they had unless they had access to a well. The problem was that there would constantly be breaking of these, and we understand that a little more now. We understand geology better, so those would constantly crack. Well, if they crack, then the water goes away, so they would be constantly repairing their cisterns. And if you go back even now um, to that area, there are just you know thousands of these cisterns that have been dug um, that have been found by archaeologists. And so God says it's like this. You keep digging your own cistern. Instead of going to this well of living water, this spring of fresh, clean water that's flowing right beside you. So you're digging and you're trying to scoop this stagnated water out of the cistern so that you can repair the cistern. And right behind you is this spring and you won't have anything to do with it. And that's idolatry. God has provided this beautiful, clean, clear, fresh water and you reject it for what you've made yourself, this old, dirty, slimy, muddy water. Instead of receiving what he has for you, you've replaced it with something that doesn't really have life. Now, it might quench your thirst a little bit. It might hydrate you for a moment, but it won't satisfy you, and it won't sustain you for the long term. <laughs> when uh, my, uh, my husband's parents came to visit us a couple of years ago, they bought, it's actually funny, they bought my son a pool, um, just a little kiddie pool because he was a couple years old at the time. And um, they were filling it up all together, my, my husband and my husband's dad and my son. And um, my son said, I'm thirsty. And my husband did what dads do. He turned the hose over to, to let my son have a drink. And apparently my father-in-law went, what are you doing? And he said, I'm giving him a drink, Dad. And he said, that's gross water. And my, my husband was like, there were summer days where I wasn't allowed to come inside. If I was thirsty, I was told, go to the hose. And, and his dad just, I, I love my father-in-law. He was like, well, that was you. <laughs> but we know instinctively, don't we, that if water has been sitting somewhere for some time, things could have crawled through it, things could have grown in it. We know that instinctively. And so um, we struggle with this because we, we don't call the sins in our life idolatry, but that's what it is. We reject God's living, sustaining water for our own cisterns. Uh, maybe instead of turning to God for comfort, you turn to food or mindless entertainment. Maybe instead of looking to God for your significance, you turn to your career your accomplishments. 
Maybe instead of looking to God for security, you watch your stocks, you watch your bank account, you look at your money. Maybe instead of turning to God for joy, you expect your spouse or your significant other or your children to bring you joy. Maybe instead of looking to God for hope, you're following politics and the political process and putting your hope in some candidate or, or some bill. Maybe instead of looking to God for truth, you look to popular opinion or, or maybe you're better than that and you look to academic consensus. Instead of looking to God for strength, you look to your own physical or mental or emotional strength. You read self-help resources and motivational books and you post all the quotes on Facebook. But it's not that there's anything wrong with any of that stuff. It's fine. God might even use some of those things to help us. The problem is we're not looking to them for help. We're looking to them for hope. We've replaced God with things that might even sometimes be good things, but we make a good thing a God thing, and that is idolatry. And so God, through Jeremiah, brings this charge against the people that he, they have rejected his clean water for these broken cisterns. And with tears, Jeremiah expresses the heart of God that his sons and daughters would come back, that they would turn back, that they would repent and have nothing to do with their cisterns and find fulfillment in him. And so that's chapter 17. And then we come to chapter 18. This chapter focuses on Daniel, and I bet you enjoy reading the stories of Daniel this week. They're very fascinating, um, but we're not actually going to focus a whole lot on Daniel himself today. Um, I know you learn much from this story, and we'll discuss him more in your group tomorrow. Make sure that you come. If you're part of the Lathrop campus, be here at 6 p.m. Uh, there's River Island-specific groups. There's a group in Modesto. Make sure that you're coming to those, because we get a lot deeper in those groups than we, than we do here in the morning. We're able to discuss together and dive in. Um, but today, we're going to focus on a king that was alive during uh, Daniel's time, and that was King Nebuchadnezzar. Isn't that a fun name? <laughs> you want to put that on like a monogram on your baby's wall, King Nebuchadnezzar. If you were a VeggieTales kid, if you grew up, if you know, you know, uh, then they called him King Nebi, King Nebi, and I prefer that name a little bit more. But when Nebuchadnezzar comes into a nation that he's conquered, um, and there were many at the time, one of the things he would do is take the best and brightest young men and he would make them his personal attendants or his slaves. And so one of the young men taken from the southern kingdom, remember we're talking about the southern kingdom, Judah, uh, they had the evil King Manasseh who sacrificed his son and put up the evil um, uh, gods. And so uh, God said, okay, I'm going to let the Babylonian army decimate you and take your people captive um, because you wouldn't turn back to me. And so one of the young men that was taken from Jerusalem, the capital city, was Daniel. And we know that he would have been about 15 or 16 years old. Some of his fellow young men would have been Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who we also read about this week. Again, VeggieTales kids know that their real names are Rack, Shack, and Benny. Um, but but uh, we, we read about them. And again, that was a great story. Nebuchadnezzar is the king, and he's a man who had all the power in the Mediterranean world at that time. There was no one who was more feared than he was. He was very full of himself. He was a graphic example of what life looks like when we're on the throne instead of God. And there's a prophet during this time named Ezekiel. He's a contemporary of Daniel. And Ezekiel paints the picture of what it means to replace God in our lives. He said, in the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God, but you are a mere mortal and you are not God. This is the message that Ezekiel has, the message that King Nebuchadnezzar learns, and the message that I want us to get before we leave here today. There is a real God, and you are not him. Now, I think this seems obvious, but I want you to think about how we live, and a lot of times it seems like we've got this confused. Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebi, is going to learn this lesson firsthand, and it's a lesson that our culture needs to learn because we're seeing an increased tendency in our world towards self-centeredness. 
Pastor Troy is telling me about this psychological test he's been looking into. It's been given for decades um, by psychologists. It's called the Narcissistic Personality Inventory the NPI, the Narcissistic Personality Inventory. And psychologists are saying that in recent years, there's been a trend toward increases in the score on this test. And that's not a good thing. Here's how the score works. Uh, the person taking the test is given comments and they have to rate how well they agree with that comment on a scale of one to five. Um, so the comments would be like, if I ruled the world, it would be a better place. And they need to decide on a scale of one to five how true that is. Or I think I'm a special person. Or I can be anything I want to be if I really work at it. And they've seen this huge increase in test scores over the last number of years because there's been this mentality that it's all about me, that no one can tell me what to do, that if I was in charge, things would be better. And one of the problems uh, that a professor at San Diego State University explained is that we're increasingly raising our children in an environment where we tell them they are special, but we don't talk to them about a shared responsibility to others. We're telling our children that they're special, but we're not talking to them about a shared responsibility to others. And when you live in a world where you're special, but you're not responsible, it creates narcissistic tendencies. They're talking about a uh, preschool curriculum where students were singing, you know, sometimes they put new words to songs. They're singing, I am special, I am special, look at me, look at me. And out of context, that sounds bad, but don't we tell our kids this all the time? You're special. You can be anything that you want to be. I grew up in the generation that adopted those things, and I think I'm amazing. I turned out just fine. We do, we tell our children this, but it's very important, and, and I'd just like to take a moment to pause and remind us, parents and grandparents, it's our responsibility to tell our children that they're special because they are. God created them on purpose for a purpose, but the purpose is to serve other people. When Jesus came to this world, it wasn't so that people would serve him, it was so that he could serve people, and that's what a real leader does. So it's not all bad to teach kids that they're special, to teach people that they're special, but if it's not filtered through the lens of, and so is everybody else, then we're gonna run into trouble. And that was King Nebuchadnezzar's favorite song. He sang it all day long from the rooftop. I am special, I am special. And so he wanted everyone to know how special and powerful he was. He was the king of, of Babylon, which is modern day Iraq. He was an evil man. And in Jeremiah 37, we read about the king. Um, he captured the king of Judah and his family. Um, and it says that Nebuchadnezzar had the king's children killed in front of him. And then he had his eyes plucked out so that the last image he ever saw was his children dying. Um, in another place, we read that he captured another king of Judah and he roasted him to death over a fire. So we're talking about an evil man that delighted in causing pain and causing um, problems. He's a tyrant. And we saw um, that when he captured the southern kingdom and he destroyed Jerusalem, uh, that he, he kind of delighted in that. He bragged about it. So it's shocking then when we read Daniel chapter 4 that King Nebuchadnezzar is the one that wrote this chapter of the Bible. He is an author in the Bible. Daniel chapter 4. It's more shocking when you hear the words that he writes. So we're going to read, I'm going to read them from the screen for you. They're going to be up here, but they're taken from J Daniel chapter 4. It says this, from King Nebuchadnezzar to the people of every province, nation, and language in the world. I wish you peace and prosperity. I am pleased to write to you about the miraculous signs and amazing things the Most High God did for me. His miraculous signs are impressive. He uses his power to do amazing things. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His power lasts from one generation to the next. This man had become a worldwide worship leader. He was writing songs to God, and, and people had to be wondering what happened. Something happened. It'd be like you wake up one morning and Kanye West and Justin Bieber were telling people about Jesus kind of be wondering what happened. 
because something had to have happened. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar tells us what happens in Daniel chapter 4. He starts by praising God and giving glory to the Lord. And you're thinking, based on all the information leading up to that, it doesn't match up. But he tells us about what happened in his life and how he's learned that there's a God and it's not him. And so in Daniel chapter 4, verse 4, uh, Nebuchadnezzar tells us he's at home and he's content and prosperous. And then he tells us that one night he had a dream. Um, God paid him a visit through the dream. Now this is all summarized on pages 256 and 257 of the story, but we're going to narrow our focus this morning, um, and we're going to read the words from Daniel chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. It says this, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity, but one night I had a dream that frightened me. I saw visions that terrified me as I lay in my bed. So um, this dream, uh, there's multiple parts to it. He talks about this big, beautiful tree that he saw. And then it says this in verses 13 through 17. Then as I lay there dreaming, I saw a messenger, a holy one coming down from heaven. The messenger shouted, cut down the tree and lop off its branches, shake off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Chase the wild animals from its shade and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump and the roots in the ground, bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Now let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the field. For seven periods of time, at seven years, let him have the mind of a wild animal instead of the mind of a human. For this has been decreed by the messengers. It is commanded by the holy ones, so that everyone may know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the earth. He gives them to anyone he chooses, even to the lowliest of people. Now, if you ever had a bad dream, and you're like, you wake up and you're like, <gasps> And then you try to explain it to someone, maybe your spouse is laying next to you, you're telling your coworkers the next day, and they're like, that's not scary. And you realize as you're telling it, you're like, no, 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 but listen, I was at Target, and I didn't have any pants on, and then a clown started chasing me, and you're like, you were really, really scared. You were genuinely terrified, um, but as you try to explain it, you're like, it's not that bad, right? So that's, that's what kind of King Nebuchadnezzar has. Like he knows this is bad. He knows that there's something wrong. He knows it wasn't just like, you know, something that he ate last night. And so he calls in his court magicians and interpreters and nobody knows what it means. And so eventually through a series of events, he brings in Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar can see that Daniel is upset by the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar says, don't let it bother you because I know it's about somebody else, but Daniel knows that it's not. And so Daniel gives the interpretation, the meaning of the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And he says this in verses 22 and, and 25, your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. But verse 25 says, you will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times, seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. In other words, life is going to be really bad for you until you acknowledge that there is a real God and you are not him. You're going to end up lower than you can imagine until you can figure this out. And when you figure this out, then you can return to power. But the king blows it off, which is not surprising because when the God of me is sitting on the throne of your heart, he's always whispering to you, the rules don't apply. You're not going to get caught. You're too good for this. You can keep doing what you're doing, living how you want to live, treating people how you want to treat them. There's not going to be any penalty for you, maybe for those people. And then in Daniel chapter 4, verse 33, remember Nebuchadnezzar is still telling the story. It says, immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate like the ox. Picture this. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. That's gross. So he had these manicured nails. He was very well kept, very well taken care of. Like people that think they are amazing often do take care of themselves. 
And he was sent into the desert for years to be the lowest that he could possibly be until his nails grew out like claws and his hair became all unkempt and grew out. And he, he was struck with this um, mental illness for years. Um, and, and he was out there living like an animal for years. And then in verse 34, it says this, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. My sanity was restored. Now here's what it means to be sane. The moment his sanity was restored, he didn't go back to being his own God. The moment he became truly sane, he saw that there is one God and that he is not him. So he repented and he humbled himself and he began to sing these worship songs to God declaring his greatness and his power. And Nebuchadnezzar's motivation changed from living for himself to living for God. He recognizes that his own power is something that comes from God and the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And the purpose of his life changes from being driven to be happy to declaring the goodness of God to the whole world. And it took a lot to get him off the throne of his own heart. So my question for you today is, what's it going to take for you? What are you going to have to experience? What low are you going to have to hit before you don't need to be in the driver's seat anymore? Before you can acknowledge that there's a God and that you are not him? There's a book um, that has impacted my life on a huge scale. It's not the Bible. Um, of course it's the Bible. The Bible has impacted me greatly. But there's another book um, that I consider just one of the greats in my life. Um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Dr. Stephen Covey. Um, I've talked about it a lot, actually, from stage, and everybody just kind of looks at me like, nerd. Um, but, <laughs> but it's a great book. I've actually made it um, required reading for our ministry training center students that are coming up through. It's really good. In it, Dr. Covey, who is a Christ follower, um, explains the difference between our circle of concern and our circle of influence. Our, our circle of concern and our circle of influence. So he says that, that everybody has like two circles in their lives. Two, um, two circles that contain kind of what we know to be true. So you've got your circle of concern and your circle of influence. So uh, your circle of influence would be like things that you have control over, things that you have influence over. This would be like what you eat, what you wear, where you go, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, the things that you say, who you choose to talk with, who you hang out with, even your salvation. That would all be within your circle of influence, the things that you can control. And the second circle that every person has is called a circle of concern. Uh, this is things that we can't, um, it, it usually what it is, is it usually encircles the circle of influence. It's just a little bit bigger. Um, so it, it encompasses everything that we can control, but it also, there's some stuff out here that maybe we can't control, but it still concerns us, like how people treat us, what other people say to us, other people in general the cost of living, politics, weather, the law of gravity, things that you can't control but that still might concern you, that still might be on your radar. Now, this is always, it's really overly simplistic, okay? You can analyze it if you want to, um, but everything is going to be different person to person, but the truth is there are things that we can control and there are things that we can't control. And that might be the entire message for some of us today. There are things that we can control, and there are things that we can't control. But one of our landmark responsibilities as a human being is to bring healthy balance between our circles. There's a problem when we have a gigantic circle of concern. 
everything in our world is something that we're concerned about. We are, you know, we can only influence so many things, but we're going to be concerned about everything. We're concerned about the state of the nation, and we're concerned about, you know, COVID, and we're concerned about vaccines, and we're not not just how we relate to it, but we're concerned about what everybody's doing at all times, no matter what. And if you're always concerned with things that you can't control, you're going to go crazy. We choose what we're going to be concerned about. On the other hand, we have a problem when we shrink our circle of influence, excuse me, our circle of concern down below our circle of influence. So there's a bunch of stuff out here that we could control, but we're so inwardly focused that we're choosing not to be concerned about it. Maybe we abdicate our responsibility in our marriage or with our children or at our job. We don't concern ourselves with things that we can control. We don't take responsibility for things that are ours. And I want you to really, I mean, it's so simple, but I want you to really try and frame this in a way that applies to you. You can't control other people. That's true. So parents, you can't make your kids do anything, whether they're two or whether they're 42. You can't make them behave. You can't make them accept Christ. And some of you in here, you're my people because you're like, oh, yeah, we'll see about that. I get it. Some of you are like, oh, yeah. But what is within your circle of influence? Because a lot of parents sell their influence way short and they abdicate some of their responsibility. Where your kids go, who they talk to, what they watch or listen to, how much money they have access to, whether or not they have a phone, whether or not they still have that phone, who they talk to on that phone, what they watch on that phone, whether they go to church, youth group, camp, mama, daddy, until they are out of your house. When they are living in your home and on your dime, every single one of those things is within your circle of influence. And the good Lord in his sovereignty gave that little whippersnapper to you and you are responsible for it. I mean him or her. Another example, I've been teasing uh, you about people that wanna get out of California. It started as a joke and now it's in my job description and it's on my personal mission statement because boy did I step on some toes when I started talking about that. You're welcome. I don't care if you want to leave. I just want you to be real. The grass is not that much greener or that much cheaper on the other side. Even if you can get a bigger house and a better job and maybe live in a red state instead of a blue one, you aren't going to escape an enemy that comes to steal and kill and destroy your family. The political climate, the laws, the evil and depravity in our culture and our country are not going anywhere. It's not that we can't impact them. We can. The problem is when we run from them, believing that there's some magical rainbow land where we can comfortably hide from the world while we wait for Jesus to come back and send all those bad, ugly people to hell and take us up to heaven. Get out of here. So you have this huge circle of concern and you're so worried about those margins that you don't concern yourself enough with your responsibility, your influence, what God has given you. Now the book says that we need to expand our circle of influence, what we have control over. For instance, at your job, you can't change the direction of the company from the mailroom. But if you do your job in the mailroom right, you move up and you expand your influence. And if you do that well, you move up again. And if you do that well, you move up again. And after a while, you're the CEO and you can change the direction of the company. That's great. The author is a Christian, that's a biblical principle. But I wanna look at this through the lens of eternity. What is your circle of influence? Compared to the world, it doesn't look like much. But what we forget, church, is that this is God's circle of influence. That he has control over everything and everyone, that he is in control and we run around like chickens with our head cut off trying to repair all these cisterns these sources of false hope 
We try to fix our spouse so that they'll fulfill us. We try to get a better job so that we're safe. We, we look for love in a lineup of people or, or we look for validation on the internet or on social media. We try to get out of California and it's all just broken cisterns. And you look up and you realize we aren't hapless victims. We're sinning. We're the problem because we're, we're worshiping, we're idolizing what we think can save us instead of acknowledging the truth that God has already revealed to us. He is the answer. He is in control. He is the only thing that can save us. If you read through the Old Testament and again and again, people turn toward God and then back to the cisterns. They turn toward God and then they turn back to what they think can save them or fulfill them or make them happy. And then finally, the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene and he introduces himself as the living water. It's who he is. He's the well, the source, the spring. He introduces himself that way in John chapter four to a woman who has been married five times. And the one she is with now is not her husband. She has dug six different cisterns, hoping to find joy, happiness, safety, and security. And each one has leaked and spilled out. And then one day she's at a well and she meets Jesus. And Jesus says this to her in John chapter four. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He says, I'm the living water and I'm right here. My arms are always open. Today, I think if you're listening to me, whether you're joining us online, listening to the podcast, you're here in this room where I can see your beautiful faces or you're joining us out in the lobby, I think you fall into one of two camps. I believe that there's probably at least one person, if not a few people in here, that are really hearing the truth for the first time. You haven't known the living water. Maybe you grew up in church, maybe you've heard it before, but you haven't really given your life to God, haven't known what freedom and life look like. You're hearing it now and God is moving on your heart and you're ready. That's awesome. Today is the day for new life, the day to decide to devote your life to the one and only source of living water, to Jesus. And a life like that is beautiful. It's one of sacrifice and hard work, but it's also one of the greatest fulfillment and joy and hope that a person could ever know. And if that's you today, we're not gonna waste any time. Now is the moment. Here is the challenge. I'm gonna pray. The prayer isn't magical or mysterious. It's just a script. It's like a wedding vow. It won't mean anything if you don't mean it, but if you mean it, it will mean everything. And as I pray this prayer, if you're gonna say yes to Jesus, I want you to pray it with me. I want you to make a decision right now and choose to step over the cliff in a new life. And the prayer goes like this. Heavenly Father, forgive all my sins. Make me new. Jesus, save me. Fill me with your spirit so I can follow you always. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for new life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it in your heart, then I promise you everything is different now. And they'd love to talk to you about what that looks like. Just come talk to me. But I said if you're in here, you're in one of two camps. First camp just came to know Jesus and praise God. The second camp, uh-oh. The, there are those of us in here in the second camp that know Jesus, that have given their lives to him, that have had a taste of living water, and that have gone back to your sister. What a dangerous place to be, to know the truth and then turn back to a lie, to taste freedom 
and then to run back to captivity. How incredibly sad. But we do it. We let the enemy trick us. We believe a lie. Even now, some of you are hearing, sure, Trin can pray, but that's all good for someone else. But you have real problems. It's easy for a pastor to say. You've really gotten yourself into a mess this time. Maybe this time you can't really get out of it. I've got good news and bad news for you. The bad news is this is bad. That's the bad news. Living in captivity hurts, but living willingly in captivity kills. Choosing idolatry is not okay, and you will pay the price. But the good news is God is good. He loves you. And the Bible says he pursues you with an everlasting love. He will keep showing you over and over again that he is the answer, even if that means that you hit rock bottom. He's like us parents. Remember, God is the ultimate father. And like we talked about a few minutes ago, a good parent knows that they can't make their kid do anything. In this case, it's not because God can't. It's because he's kind and he gives us a choice. Instead, a good dad rewards healthy behavior, penalizes dangerous behavior, loves unconditionally, and believes for their child to make the right choice. I heard a parent say it this way this week, and I'm stealing this, this is mine now. He said every night he has three girls and he tells them, girls, right before they go to bed, girls, do you know that I love you no matter how many bad things you do? And they say, yes, daddy. And then he said, the magic is in this. Then I say, girls, do you know that I love you no matter how many good things you do? And they say, yes, daddy. The good news is if you keep making idols, God will keep knocking them down. If you believe money will save you, it will disappear. If you believe your body is your salvation, it will fail. If you believe that a person can fulfill you, they will fall. Whatever you place on the throne of your life, the Father will patiently, lovingly break until the day that you finally see the truth, that God is the only answer to every question of your heart. Like the prodigal son, you will be lovingly reduced to absolutely nothing so that you can see that everything is nothing without God. I heard it said this way from someone who had just accepted Jesus. I didn't realize Jesus was all I really wanted until Jesus was all I really had. If you're in this camp as we close today, if you've been depending on broken cisterns instead of drinking from the well of living water, then like Jeremiah, I implore you with tears because of my love for you, stop it. Don't put the Father in the position of having to keep breaking down your idols. Break them down yourself lay them down put god in his rightful place in your life and watch your life become right again not perfect not painless but right as only life with jesus can be here's what we're gonna do when you came in today you were given a, a little dixie cup can i thank you pastor Tash. it's not even name brand because i'm cheap when I was a kid, I told you there were seven of us. And one thing I learned as a parent, um, but even, even then, is it doesn't matter how great things are during the day, no child wants to go to bed. None of them. And I know there's someone in here that's like, actually, my child sleeps great. Well, good for you. You know how it is. They were hungry at, they weren't hungry at dinner, but now it's bedtime and their tummy is so hungry. They didn't care who you were this afternoon, but they're supposed to be laying down and now they just want to snuggle. They've been fine all day, but now it's lights out and their finger has an owie and it needs a princess bandaid and it can't be the bell one because it needs to be the Cinderella one. And the one excuse that every kid in the history of the world uses to get out of bed is I need a drink of water, you know. Well, multiply that by the thousands of children that my parents had, and I don't know how my mom did not lose her mind. 
So one day, a sleeve of Dixie cups shows up in the bathroom along with a note card. Now, my mother is famous for her note cards. You see a note card from a distance as a Stein kid and you start to sweat a little bit because it means that mom had a message that needed to be left for you in Sharpie with her signature heart mom and your life's about to change. So one day, a sleeve of Dixie cups shows up in the kitchen with one of her note cards. It says, one cup per kid per night. One cup per kid per night. I got a lot better about getting enough to drink before bed. Because when you're thirsty, a Dixie cup isn't gonna do it, especially not a Dixie cup from the bathroom sink. That's disgusting. It's almost cruel. It's a taste of water, but it's not enough to satisfy, is it? (laughs) This is your cistern. Whatever that is for you, your spouse, your children, your substance, your paycheck, your politics, the dream of one day moving to Texas for some reason. Whatever it is, I can guarantee you this, it will never, ever satisfy you. But we've lined the stage with these beautiful, rare, high quality, special edition bottles of 100% pure spring water. And if today you're in the second camp, if you've been depending on a cistern instead of drinking of the living water, I'm gonna ask you to do something for me as a symbolic act of surrender. I want you in just a moment to bring your little Dixie cup up here and exchange it for a nice tall drink of water. I want you to toss that cup on this stage and with it, I want you to really, truly lay down your idol. Don't come up here because you want a free bottle of water. We have those in the lobby. I want you to really come up here if you're ready to say no to false hope so you can say yes to the living hope. And if I could go a little bit further, look at me. You don't toss this on the stage and pick up your bottle of water and then go home and try to slowly get off the drug. Go toss this on the stage and take a bottle of water and then go home and maybe think about scheduling a counseling appointment to start working on your marriage. Don't toss this cup on the stage and then go home and keep living in your sin and drinking from your cistern. I am asking you to make a life change in this moment because I believe in you, because I love you, because I know that you can do it. And you might not have the time, but guess what? Your time is in your circle of influence. You choose how you use it. You choose what you do with your time. You choose what you do with your money. You choose what you do with your love. You choose what relationships you're in. You choose who you spend time with. You choose how you discipline your children. You choose how you love your spouse. You choose whether you spend time with Jesus. Stop it. Enough! It will not satisfy you! And I am so sick and tired of the enemy having his thumb on the people that I love, of holding you down, convincing you that if you can just get that person to love you, if you can just move to that place, if you can just get that job, if you can just get that one goal that your life will be perfect, never, never look at me. I love you. Please, 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 please. I don't care if you're a pastor in this church. I don't care if you're a visitor that just walked in today. I don't care if you're a stalwart of the faith that's been walking with Jesus for years and years or whether you just came to know him today. I don't care if you're working in the booth. I don't care if you're running the live stream. I don't care if you're watching online. I'm asking you to find a way to symbolically throw the cistern away and take a drink of living water. So here's what I'm gonna do. If you're in the room today, I'm gonna take one minute, 60 seconds, I think God's worth a quick decision, don't you? And I'm gonna pray, and I'm gonna invite you to come up, to drop your cistern, and to take a cool drink of water. You have one minute, please.
so proud of this decision that you've made. So proud of this new life that you're going to be participating in. If you didn't make that decision this morning, it's never too late. But I implore you, don't make God keep knocking down your false idols and breaking your cisterns. Do it yourself and run into the arms of the Father that will never leave you and never forsake you. So church, may God bless you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you may abound in every good work. We love you, church. You're dismissed.